You can open your Bibles with me to Philippians chapter 4 as uh, we are concluding this Sunday our series in Philippians. Uh, Next week, we're going to pick up in a new series that I'm calling uh, The King Whose Scepter is a Towel. Okay, think about that imagery for just a minute. The King Whose Scepter is a Towel. And In this series, we will focus on the servanthood of Jesus Christ. We're going to walk through John chapter 13 when Jesus washed the feet of his disciples, and we're going to trace that all the way through to Easter Sunday. So I am looking forward to that journey with you this morning, Uh, but our next Sunday, this morning we're in Philippians. So I remember a couple of years ago watching a comedic sketch and it was a really good one. It was um, about a, a hyped-up athlete named Charlie Sanders. He has just won the, the big game, the game-winning shot, and the scene begins in the locker room, and it's pandemonium in the locker room. Charlie Sanders' main message in the sketch is, you can do anything. Anything is possible. The world is yours. And of course, when you deal with comedy, it's satire. Uh, we, we hear people make comments like that all the time, and, and they're going to take this comment to the extreme. So the interviewer is attempting to corral this overhyped star, and there's no hope. He starts screaming into the mic, there are no limits. You can swim across the Atlantic Ocean. You can jump really high and touch the moon. He starts trying to interpret him a little bit. Yes, Charlie, you feel like you can touch the moon right now, don't you? Well, he will not relent. I can fly. Anybody can fly. Now the interviewer is getting a little more uncomfortable. And then Charlie grabs the mic and he looks out into the screen and he's like, kids, you can fly. The interviewer is like, hold on a second, kids. You can't fly. We just, we want you to be aware. And then Charlie grabs the mic away from him again. And he's like, no, you can fly. Literally, you can fly. Children, you cannot literally fly. Boys and girls, ages eight through 12, you are immortal. And it just keeps going from there. I mean, the things that he tells kids that they can do, he tells them to get up on their roofs. He says, run onto the freeway, you will become a robot. It goes on and on and on until finally the scene ends with a press conference and Charlie Sanders looks pretty somber and he says, I want to say to all the families who lost children, I'm very sorry. My statements were irresponsible I have subsequently looked up the terms literally and metaphorically, and I found that whereas I was not incorrect, they did not mean what I thought they meant. I have to say, the sketch is not always wrong. Uh, When you look out in how people use language today, uh, they can misappropriate terms. They can get hyperbolic in their language. And I want to suggest this morning that the same thing happens with verses of Scripture. 
Um, when I was listening to that apology press conference, I thought to myself, man, uh, we should probably have one of these for the verse, the key verse that we are going to be addressing this morning. Um, in Philippians 4.13, you probably have heard this one. Paul says, I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. Now, one pastor quipped, he said, listen, if you've never played golf before, and your golf buddies hear you muttering this verse under your breath while you're teeing off, you just might turn them into atheists. Do you want to learn how to fly? Go to flight school. And don't get into a plane and start muttering this verse. Otherwise, you're going to have your own apology tour to go on. Uh, whereas I was not incorrect, it did not mean what I thought it meant. And this brings us to a principle on how we interpret the Bible this morning, okay? There are lots of verses in the Bible that mean a lot to us. Uh, we cling to them. They're promises from God's word. Uh, but anytime I take a verse and I just kind of apply it however I want, I am now mishandling the word of God. So what do I have to do? I have to put the verse in its total context to understand what it means. Now, Paul gives us a very clear idea of what he means in Philippians 4, verses 10 through 19. Let me read that to you. He says, How I praise the Lord that you are concerned about me again. I know you have always been concerned for me, but you didn't have the chance to help me. Not that I was ever in need. For I've learned how to be content with whatever I have. I know how to live on almost nothing or with anything. I have learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it is with a full stomach or empty, with plenty or little. For I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. Even so, you have done well to share with me in my present difficulty. As you know, you Philippians were the only ones who gave me financial help when I first brought you the good news and then traveled on from Macedonia. No other church did this. Even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent help more than once. I don't say this because I want a gift from you. Rather, I want you to receive a reward for your kindness. At the moment, I have all I need and more. I am generously supplied with the gifts you sent me with Epaphroditus. They are a sweet-smelling sacrifice that is acceptable and pleasing to God. And the same God who takes care of me will supply all your needs from his glorious riches which have been given to us in Christ Jesus. And so I think after having heard the context, you would probably agree with me that this is not an overhyped verse intended to be claimed by uh, Olympic athletes aspiring for a gold medal. No, the context of this verse is about a poor church in Macedonia who reached deep in their pockets and helped an apostle who was imprisoned. Remember Paul's story. While he was in Rome in imprisonment, 
he had no ability to provide for himself unless sources of food and other resources came to him from the outside, he was essentially all on his own. So at the core, when you look at the book of Philippians, the book of Philippians is actually a thank you letter. And the apostle Paul, being who he is, wants to teach this church about their giving and what it means. So he begins with letting them in on a little secret. Now, I want to kind of trace a thought process with you. If you look at verse 10, Paul says, I praise the Lord that you are concerned for me. Again, other translations render it, you renewed your concern for me. The image of that word renewed is like a flower that's budding. And Paul, looking at the generosity of this Philippian church, says, that flower has budded multiple times in my ministry. It, it began when I was first with you and I was sharing the gospel and then I went on from there and I, I went to other places and shared the gospel and it flowered again and again and again. But then we see that something had interrupted the pattern. Uh, you don't get the idea as you read the letter that they had stopped supporting him because they no longer cared or they didn't want to help him, but that something was interfering with their ability to give. Paul says, you didn't have a chance to help me. Well, what could that be? Maybe it was a bad economy. Maybe these people just didn't have any resources to give Paul for a season. As they say, you can't get water out of a stone. But Paul he says to them, I want to let you in on a little secret. Maybe you're sitting there thinking as a church that because you couldn't support me, that I was suffering, that I was going without, that I was in dire straits. He's like, I want to let you in on a little secret. And what is Paul's secret? I have learned to be content with whatever I have. Now that word, contentment, is a very powerful word. As I listen to people process today their lives and reflect on their lives and think about their lives, I have to say I don't hear this word come up very often. In fact, as you listen to people talk about their life, more often than not, it's coming from the lens of what I wish I had or what I desire to have or what I want, but scripture is telling us that if we can change our attitude, there's power in it. When you grow content, that can't be taken away from you. In fact, I would suggest this morning that it's a game changer. So what is it? What does it mean to be content? Uh, does it mean that I have everything that I want? Or does it mean that I want everything that I have, or does it mean that I don't want anything at all? Well, I want to suggest this morning that you can't pin it down into any one of those things, actually, from a biblical perspective. Let me give you a funny little image as I help you to think about contentment. You can go ahead and put this picture on the screen. Any of you guys remember that guy? Okay, some of the younger generation is like, who in the world is that? Well, let me make a very important introduction to you this morning. That is Angus who? 
MacGyver, right? Secret agent Angus MacGyver. I remember watching him as a young guy. He aired from 1985 to 1992. And MacGyver was the man. And of course, he had that sweet mullet to go along with it. Now, every show, every episode, somehow MacGyver finds himself in a predicament and you're thinking to yourself, how in the world is he going to get out of this one? And then what does he do? He starts working with the things that no one else would think to use. He makes bombs out of toothpaste and toothpicks. And you know, when you think about the creativity of MacGyver, I want to suggest that that is an image of biblical contentment. Contentment is making the most of who you are and what you have for the glory of God, the good of others, and your joy in the Lord. I like how G.K. Chesterton explains it. He says, contentment is the skill of getting out of every situation all the good that there is in it. Have you ever thought about contentment that way? All the good. So if you're experiencing abundance or scarcity or encouragement or discouragement or disappointment, the Bible tells us over and over and over again that guess what? You can be a joy seeker in the midst of all of this. You can find that there is actual good in it all. Where does the power of that come from? Well, that's our key verse this morning. I can do everything through Christ who strengthens me. See, it's not a verse where if seven Olympic athletes all claim it, only one of them turns out to be right. No. It's a verse that every single Christian can claim. Because what you're saying when you claim this verse, you are saying that I am leaning wholly, totally into the rich, abundant resources of Jesus Christ, the Lord of the universe, and that in his strength, I can do God's will for my life. That's Paul's secret. And he's saying to this church, you're worried about me. You're thinking that unless you give resources to me, I'm not going to be okay. But he's like, I want you to understand I'm fine. I have Jesus. He takes care of all my needs. But I'm really glad you give. Now look at the next couple of verses and see where Paul takes us. He says, as you know, you Philippians were the only ones who gave me financial help when I first brought you the good news and then traveled on from Macedonia. No other church did this. Even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent help more than once. You see, Paul viewed this habit of giving that had developed in the church of Philippi as a really, really good thing. It was an exemplary, in fact. Uh, in another letter in the New Testament, He's talking to a very affluent church in Corinth. Uh, these people have resources, they have access, they have agency, all of those things that come along with affluence. And he says to this church, 
you've got a bad relationship with money. And I want to tell you about another church that has a good relationship with money. And then he talks to them about Philippi. Again, this is 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 2. I want you to know, dear brothers and sisters, what God in his kindness has done through the churches in Macedonia. They are being tested by many troubles, and they are very poor. But they are also filled with abundant, and there's our key word in Philippians, right? Joy, which has resulted in or overflowed in rich generosity. You know, as I look at these two churches and I start thinking about their differences, I think to myself, something was off in Corinth. Why? Because money was a touchy subject. The Apostle Paul, when he first went into this context and he's sharing the gospel there, he knew that he couldn't ask the church to supply his needs. He made tents instead. Now, I want to say this as your pastor. If I, your pastor, cannot talk to you about money and your relationship to money, that is not a sign of deep spirituality. That is a sign of unhealth in the church. I mean, think about these two churches. Corinth, money is a touchy subject. Paul feels like he can't address it. And if you get into the letter and read about their problems, boy, do they've got, have they got some problems. But then Philippi, Paul doesn't even need to talk about money because these people get it. They give. And Paul is energized by this. He's excited for them. Listen to what he says again in verse 17. I don't say this because I want a gift from you. You hear what he's saying? I don't want something from you. I have Jesus Christ. I, I don't need anything from you. I, I think the same way when you think about giving, you know, God doesn't need something from me. He says in the Psalms, I own the cattle on a thousand hills. I don't need anything from you, but I want something for you. So you, when you think about this discipline of giving, this act of worship that scripture describes, you had to ask yourself the question, well, what do I get out of giving? And that's what Paul addresses in the text this morning. He tells them three things they get from it. The first thing he says is we get to partner with God in his eternal work. If you look at the ESV translation in verse 15, it says this, no church entered into partnership with me. Now, you might remember that word. We talked about that word earlier on in the series. Partnership is the Greek word koinonia, which we translate fellowship. So when you get together in a body of Christ, you're not a lone ranger, but you're a part of a community on mission. And when you give, you partner with something that is bigger than yourselves, God's mission, and you expand your impact by collectively doing that together. I was thinking about that with our church the things that we get to give to, uh, this whole Our Story initiative and how we can come together as a church and greatly advance the utilization of our facility, but also expand the vision of our missional impact. We're thinking about decades to come. And I'm telling you, when we do that together, that is koinonia, that's fellowship. 
Or what about when we give to missions? Uh, last time I checked, most of us are not going to get on a plane and fly to Senegal, West Africa. I'm sure some of our hearts would love to do that, but that just might not happen for most of us or many of us. And yet, we have two incredible missionaries in the names of Bo and Michelle Columbine who have been called by God to go to Senegal, West Africa, and they are the hands and feet of Jesus on our behalf. Or what about the local needs in our own backyard? You think about the issues on the Cape, like food insecurities, or young families that are struggling to put diapers on their children. And when we give, we partner with Cape Kid Meals and a baby center and these organizations that have been called, I believe called, to address these issues in our own backyard. See, when you give, you get partnership. And you're partnering in something that is so much bigger than yourself. Now, Paul also says, beyond partnership, we get eternal rewards. You know, that, that word reward that's used in the text, the idea of, behind that term is a bank that's paying you interest when you leave your money in the bank. So think about that for just a second. Scripture tells us that God pays us interest when we give to his work. Uh, Jesus talked about this in um, his ministry, and he was essentially saying that when you give, the heavenly rewards will come back to you 100-fold. Now, for those of you who are like, I don't do math. I do not understand what just was said there. Um, let me break it down a little bit, okay? 100-fold is like a 10,000% return on your investment. You're like, okay, well, what is that? $5 growing to become $500. Now, if you knew that every dollar was going to grow like that, how many dollars would you put into the investment? A lot. But we also know that this investment, you can only receive the return, the dividend, however you want to think about it if you're giving to the kingdom of God. You know, people that have a background in the financial world, they all have a story of that, that one company where, oh, I wish I would have invested in or I wish I would have stayed invested in. Uh, I was in that company and it shot up and I sold and then it just kept shooting up for decades to come. Uh, one example of that is the company Amazon, right? <laughs> Imagine if you had invested $1,000 in Amazon in 2001, what would you have returned if you cashed out in 2021? Well, the answer is $70,000 for 1,000. Rats! <laughs> I mean, I wish I'd have known. I would have put all kinds of money into Amazon, but I didn't know, so I didn't put any money in Amazon, and so I got no return. Now, a little secret on all of this investment stuff, I don't care how smart someone says they are or how good they are at predicting the future, no one has a crystal ball. But here's the deal with Scripture. Scripture says 
you don't need to be a luck box to stumble into the next multi-bagger. That God has promised that if you give to his kingdom work, you will receive that kind of reward. But you have to give. Uh, 1 Timothy, we looked at these verses a while ago, says it like this. Tell them to use their money to do good. They should be rich in good works and generous to those in need, always being ready to share with others. By doing this, they will be storing up their treasure as a good foundation for the future so that they may experience true life. I love that promise. It's incredible. Future reward for present investment. But here's the thing. Paul doesn't locate all of the rewards or what we get when we give in the distant future. He also says there's present benefit right now for you. Look at verse 19. He explains it there. And this same God who takes care of me will supply all your needs from his glorious riches which have been given to us in Christ Jesus. Now, I want to be really careful as we talk about a verse like this because we might read a verse like this and say, well, you know, the Bible's saying that if, if I give to the church or I give to missions, then God's going to make me rich. Is that what the Bible says? No. No, the Bible is telling us this morning that God will do certain things if you are generous to his work. Now, Rick Warren notes that you can't claim verse 19 if you're not applying verses 14 through 18. You have to be invested in the work of God. But the things that we notice from what we get, if you could go back to verse 19, I want to unpack that a little bit. Just one slide back. Did I, did I send you in the wrong direction? Go to the next way. There we go. Thank you. So this same God, okay? Now, if you're looking at that verse in the English Standard Version, Paul actually says, my God. So he personalizes God. So God promises his personal care over your life. Think of it like this. When Jesus talked about God, he called him your heavenly father. And he said that God willingly answers your prayer requests liberally and enthusiastically. He wants to take care of you and he cares about the whole you, your physical needs, your emotional needs, your spiritual needs. But notice that the verse says needs right? Not once. And sometimes we confuse those two terms. I was reading about a sociological study that was taken in the American context here in 1890. And they went around and they surveyed the average American and they said, what are your basic needs? What do you need to survive? And back in 1890, they had identified 16 things that we would need to survive. Now, a couple of years ago, they ran the same exact survey. And you know how many needs people said that they had today? 98. 98. So perhaps 
the problem is not God taking care of our needs. The problem is expanding the definition of what a need is. I want to suggest this morning that this isn't on that list for God. Um, I want to suggest that many of the things that we spend our time in turmoil and concern and anxiety over actually aren't on that list. I'm thinking of things like food and clothing and our health and relationships. And scripture tells us that God doesn't want to just take care of some of those things. He wants to take care of all of those things in your life. You have to ask the question, well, where does that come from? Where does that supply come from? And again, Paul tells us where. This same God who takes care of me will supply all your needs from his glorious riches, which have been given to us in Christ Jesus. (laughs) I just have to say, a verse like this seems like it's almost too good to be true. Because what Paul is saying here, what you can infer out of this text, is essentially God is handing us, his children, the believer, a blank check. Imagine one day you just happen to run into Jeff Bezos. And he hands you a check, and as you look down at the check, you're just you're surprised because it doesn't say like $10,000 or $100,000 so that you can take care of some of your needs and concerns. No, the check is blank and Bezos looks at you and he says, I will provide whatever you need out of my resources. Whatever you want, I can help. Someone far richer than Jeff Bezos has made an offer to us in the spiritual blessings, the heavenly blessings. And if you look at the signatory line on the check, it says Jesus Christ. And guess what? That's the kind of check that never bounces. Never. So let me say that key verse to you again. I can do everything through Christ gives me strength. Let's pray. Lord, this morning as we look at your word and we see the, the, just the rich generosity of your heart, uh, we are amazed. To think that, that the God who spoke creation into existence would hand us a blank check through his son, Jesus Christ. And that you would want to supply all of our needs richly. And that you would want to give us eternal rewards and invite us to partner with you in your work. Lord, it's just, it's incredible. I pray that this morning that those truths would just sink deep into our hearts, Lord, that they would revitalize us. Perhaps we've been struggling with contentment. Perhaps, Lord, we've been evaluating our life through all of the deficit or the lack or the scarcity. And we think, oh, if I just lived somewhere else or if I was married to someone different or if I had different kids, then I'd be better off. And the truth is, Lord, that's not the secret. 
the secret is looking at everything, at who we are and what you've given us and finding the good in it. So we pray that you would make us into that kind of people this morning, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.